McPherson had a reputation for shooting from the hip. At least two presidents, Franklin D. Roosevelt and Harry Truman, had publicly accused him of being a chronic liar. But when it came to that particular allegation, nothing came close to matching the extravagance of a Tennessee senator named Kenneth McKellar. In a speech on the Senate floor, McKellar denounced Pearson as an ignorant liar, a pusillanimous liar, a peewee liar, a liar during his manhood, a liar by profession, a liar in the daytime, and a liar in the nighttime. In our interview, I naturally asked Pearson if any of those pungent adjectives accurately described him, and he naturally denied that he was any kind of liar. We then talked about politics and the next presidential election. The two of us shared the conventional wisdom that Richard Nixon was the probable Republican nominee, and when we turned our attention to who was likely to oppose him in the general election, I noted that the Democratic glamour boy would seem to be Senator Jack Kennedy. Although I didn't know the senator from Massachusetts well, I felt a certain kinship with him because we shared a common background. As boys growing up in the Boston suburb of Brookline, Jack Kennedy and I had lived in the same neighborhood. Over the years... I have often described the Brookline of my youth as an O'Connor and Goldberg town, and our two families exemplified that. I was the fourth and last child of Frank and Zina Wallace, both of whom were Jewish immigrants who came to America from the shtetls of Tsarist Russia in the late 19th century, some four decades after Kennedy's forebears emigrated from Ireland. My father eventually became a successful insurance broker, and by the time I was born in 1918, our family was settled in Brookline, which had become a haven for upwardly mobile Jews and Catholics who were still not welcome in the snootier sections around Boston, a city then notorious for its class-conscious snobbery. Joseph and Rose Kennedy moved to Brookline shortly after they were married in 1914 and began raising their large family just a block or so away from our home on Osborne Road. Jack Kennedy was one year older than I was, and we attended the same neighborhood school. Even though Jack Kennedy and I were about the same age and lived in the same neighborhood and attended the same elementary school, our paths seldom crossed during the years he lived in Brookline. I'm sure that in time... I would have gotten to know him better if he hadn't moved away. After Joseph Kennedy made his fortune as an investment banker and in other enterprises, he began to set his sights on greener pastures, and in 1927, when Jack was ten, I was nine, the Kennedys relocated to Riverdale, then a posh and exclusive section of New York City. From there, Jack Kennedy went on to his impressive achievements, which included heroism in the Pacific during World War II, then election to Congress in 1946 and to the Senate six years later. His political star then rose so rapidly that by 1957, he was on the short list of Democratic contenders for the White House. Which brings me back to my interview with Drew Pearson in December of that year. He's the only man in history that I know who won a Pulitzer Prize on a book which was ghostwritten for him, which indicates the kind of public relations buildup he's had. Who wrote the book for him? I don't recall at the present moment. I, I you know have, for a fact, yes. Drew, that the book I do know Profiles in Courage was written for Senator Kennedy I by do. somebody else. I do. Kennedy's office called the next day and asked for a copy of the transcript. A day or so later, a meeting, to which I was not invited, was held in the executive suite of my boss, Oliver Trays, the president of ABC Television. Among those present were Bobby Kennedy and the esteemed Washington lawyer, Clark Clifford, 
whose honor roll of prestigious clients included the Kennedy family. Their purpose in setting up the meeting with Trays was to get an on-air apology from Pearson and or me for what had been said in our broadcast about the authorship of Profiles in Courage. In the meantime, I'd urged Pearson to specify who had ghostwritten the book. After checking with his sources, he called to tell me it was written by a member of the senator's staff, a young man named Ted Sorensen. A few years later, Sorensen would acquire a certain derivative glory as one of President Kennedy's top advisors and his primary speechwriter. But in 1957, he was unknown to the general public. In the preface to Profiles in Courage, Kennedy credited Sorensen for his invaluable assistance in the assembly and preparation of the material on which the book was based, and that was the extent of his acknowledgment. Pearson refused to make the desired apology, and so did I. But the network brass failed to back us up. Faced with the threat of a libel suit, Trays chose to deliver the apology himself, and to make the capitulation complete, he agreed to let Clifford write it for him. I was incensed that my employers had caved in to the Kennedys. The way I saw it, the ABC apology was a humiliating insult to Pearson, who, for all his reputation as a loose cannon, was a seasoned journalist and no stranger to litigation. Through the years, he'd weathered more than a few libel suits with no serious damage to his career. As for the Kennedys, I believe they were bluffing. There's a postscript to this episode. In the spring of 1991, I interviewed Clark Clifford on 60 Minutes. He was 84 years old and in the deep twilight of his long and extraordinary career. But what the viewers of 60 Minutes did not see that evening was part of our conversation dealing with the 1957 Drew Pearson controversy. Thirty-four years later, Clifford revealed to me just how angry the Kennedys had been. My phone rang. It was Senator Kennedy. He said, I must see you at once. came to my office. He said, I've written the book, as you know, Profiles in Courage. Drew Pearson said, I didn't write the book. He said, it's terribly upsetting to me. About that time, the phone rang. It was for Senator Kennedy. It was his father. And he listened to him a while, and he said, Father, I'll put Clark on. I get on the phone. He says, uh, uh, this is Ambassador Kennedy. I said, yes, Mr. Ambassador. He says, sue the bastards for $50 million. <laughs> Even after I heard that story, I was not convinced that if Porsche had come to shove, the Kennedys would have sued us. In the context of the elaborate preparations he was making to run for president, the last thing the senator and those close to him would have wanted was a highly publicized court fight over the question of who had written Profiles in Courage. Whatever the case, the Kennedy camp stuck to its guns. A few weeks after my interview with Pearson, the senator invited me to his office on Capitol Hill, where he showed me his notes for the book and insisted that Pearson had it all wrong. Over the years, Ted Sorensen has been steadfast in his assertion that he was not the author of Profiles in Courage, but his disavowal has not gone unchallenged. In a 1980 book called Jack, the Struggles of John F. Kennedy, the historian Herbert Parmet detailed his thorough investigation of the creative process that produced Profiles in Courage and came to the conclusion that it was essentially ghostwritten. Quote, the research, tentative drafts, and organization were left to the collective labors of others, Parmet wrote, and the literary craftsmanship was clearly the work of Ted Sorensen. Close quote. The flap over the Pearson interview was my only contact with the illustrious politician who had been my boyhood neighbor. 
During the years when Kennedy was in the White House and leading us across the new frontier, I had various assignments that took me to cities at home and abroad, but Washington was seldom one of them. Fact is, I was going through a series of twists and turns as I jumped around from one job to another, and I didn't settle down until March of 1963, when I went to work for CBS News, which has been my professional home ever since. In September of that year, CBS launched a new mid-morning news show, and I was assigned to anchor it. And that's what I was doing on November 22nd, the day the shots rang out in Dallas. Many of us who lived through the shock and the grief of that day were inclined to view the Kennedy assassination as a ghastly aberration, the kind of horrific deed that simply did not happen in a civilized society and would never occur again in our lifetime. That naive assumption was shattered by subsequent events, for instead of being an isolated tragedy, Kennedy's murder was the first in a wave of comparable assaults on political leaders that persisted over the next decade and beyond. The two most charismatic black leaders of the civil rights era were gunned down by assassins, Malcolm X in 1965 and Martin Luther King Jr. three years later. And just two months after King was killed, a second Kennedy was slain in the midst of his own campaign for president. In 1972, at another campaign stop in another presidential race, Alabama Governor George Wallace was shot. He survived that attack, but the wounds he suffered left him paralyzed for life. And in September of 1975, President Gerald Ford was the target, in California, of two assassination attempts that took place within 17 days of each other. Every fresh act of violence rekindled memories of the first Kennedy assassination. And not long after the attempts on President Ford's life, I interviewed the Secret Service agent who had been assigned to Kennedy's...